Father, the most significant title that any of us can have is a son and daughter of you. And Lord, we uh, repent uh, for uh, treasuring the titles that we have as um, more significant than that. Uh, we repent for uh, wanting other titles than the son or daughter of you. Um, uh, but tonight we sit at the feet of our Father uh, for a lesson. Um, uh, a lesson that uh, can change us. And uh, so, Lord, I pray that you would remind those of us in your family uh, of your love for us and those perhaps not in your family. Uh, Lord, be convinced of the glory of being in it. Uh, so do a work among us even now. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> um, you know, there's something about being uh, Wanted to know more about famous people. Uh, you you want to know more and more and more about them. Uh, that's why stories like MTV Cribs. Uh, you, I, I can get into that. Uh, that's why story. That's why a good biography is so so compelling. Uh, but famous people, they they draw us to them. Uh, we're not we're not settled with just what we know about their accomplishments. We want to get to know them on the level of a person, and uh, perhaps. Uh, to me, when I was in high school, uh, there was no one more significant, no one more famous in my own eyes uh, than those who put on the blue and white and played at Rupp Arena. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, they won uh, two national titles. And uh, one weekend, I got a, a strange invitation. Um, it wasn't from uh, Patino or from Tubby to come for a tryout. Uh, it was uh, from a friend of mine. A friend of mine was a couple years older than me, uh, and he had the best digs on campus. Uh, he lived in Wildcat Lodge. Um, now, the, the new one wasn't there, but the old one was still there, and the old Wildcat Lodge was what this new one is in many ways. It was a freestanding dorm uh, for UK basketball players. And, uh, and, and also about a half dozen other people. Well, I knew one of those half dozen other people when I was in high school. He's a couple years older than me. And he invited uh, us to come down and stay the weekend with him. And so me and a friend of mine, we went down and we stayed in Lexington for the weekend. And we stayed in the Wildcat Lodge. And it was unbelievable. These guys that I had screamed at the TV at, that I had cheered with and shed tears for, uh, were now uh, sleeping on the other side of the wall from me. Uh, these were the same guys that I woke up the next morning and went to brush my teeth, and so was one of the starters. It was unbelievable. I saw them eat breakfast. I saw, I, I knew uh, where, I knew who were roommates together because their names were on the outside of the door. It was a behind the scenes look at UK basketball. It was, it was incredible. Uh, I got, I really had the curtain pulled back and I got to see UK basketball at, at, at a level that few people really do. See, we want to get a, I wanted to get a past the fact that they were just won the national title. I wanted to get a sense of who they were as individuals. Uh, isn't that true with who you treasure too? Don't you want to know what makes them tick? What are their families like? Uh, what do they do when they can do whatever they want? See, we want to, to pull back this curtain and we want a private tour of their inner workings. And that's what John does. 
in his gospel. This is what he does in his prologue, the first 18 verses of chapter 1. See, it's very different than the other gospels. Matthew and Luke, uh, they start with the gospel, they start their gospels with Jesus' birth narrative. That's what Matthew and Luke are doing. And those are usually the texts that, uh, that, that that's what we hear read by Linus and, Char- and Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, those are the texts that most preachers preach from uh, it, during the season, and, the, and for good reason. But John reaches way further back than Jesus' birth. What John wants to do is show us who Jesus was from all eternity. He wants to show us what he was up to before he was born in Bethlehem. And so we're going to look at this prologue the next few weeks uh, together uh, for Advent. So let's read the first five verses uh, for tonight. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word of the Lord. All right, I want to ask three questions of, the, of these five verses. The first is, uh, who is this word? Who is Jesus? Uh, this, and that's verses one and two. The second question is, uh, what was he doing before he came? Uh, that's verse 3. And then why did he come? So we have the who, the what, and the why. And right there with the who, who is Jesus, uh, we have four statements there in, in the first two verses. The first one, uh, and, and all four really are trying to establish the identity of Jesus, trying to answer who is this Jesus. And the first statement, uh, in the beginning was the word. Uh, John is wanting his readers to know that this word is preexistent, that this word is eternal. The second statement, the word was with God, means that this word is in relationship with the Father. It's the first two statements. The third one draws a conclusion from these two. The word, and the word was God and the word was with God. So what does this mean? The third statement tells us. The third statement says um, that the word was God. That's the conclusion. And then in verse 2, we have a fourth statement. And in this fourth statement, uh, we hear that this word... Is it, it, it's the, the the word for word is is um, replaced with he. I know it doesn't sound like a big deal. You see there in verse one it says in the beginning was a word, and then in verse two it says he was in the beginning with God. It doesn't sound like a big deal. The word and he, the replacement, but it's significant. And let me tell you why. Uh, the, this word for the word that we see here in these first two verses is the Greek word logos. Uh, Logos means the principle for life. Or if you want to get real heady and really intellectual, uh, Logos means the principle which imposes form on the material world and constitutes the rational soul in man. That's the heady intellectual one. But just we can settle for the principle of life. That's what Logos means. And and this word Logos was used by Greek philosophers big time. They used it all the time to try to get at um, try to get at what is the meaning of life. So, if, so instead of saying the meaning of life, Greek philosophers would say logos. Some Greek philosopher says that the logos was pleasure. Some people said the logos was to be a good person. But everyone, what they meant by logos is that if you realize it as an individual, then you could live into your full potential. Figure out the meaning of life and you become a fully functioning human being. And what John does here in his gospel is that he enters this conversation among the philosophers. 
And what he says is that the meaning of life is Jesus Christ. That's the purpose for our lives. And when the purpose of our life isn't Jesus Christ, we're just as useless as a coffee pot that's being used as a desk. And we're just as useless as a space heater being used to cook a steak. That's not what we're for. What we are for, what we are, or, or, and who we were made by was Jesus Christ. You might say, gosh, Marsh, Greek philosophers, Lagos, I mean, you're getting really heavy intellectual with us. Yeah, I, I know. But at a heart level, we're all asking that question. Everyone is. And Christianity enters that conversation and says we have an answer for it. And it's the person of Jesus. And we're not any different than the Greek philosophers, too, in that as a human race, the culture we live in is, answering, is trying to answer this big question, too. And there's really, I think, two main answers to this question in our culture. And for the most part, I think either uh, we're coming at answering that question from an empirical, what I'm calling an empirical worldview, or from a New Age worldview. Here's what the empirical worldview means. It means it believes in the facts. Only what can be proven can be said to be true. That's what empirical does. Usually people who love science, this is them. Christianity is not against science. But Christianity is saying that there are other things that are true than the things that can be proven. So usually the empirical worldview, it can't accept miracles. It can't accept the supernatural. If something can't be proven, then it cannot be true. That's the empirical worldview. This, the other one is, I'm calling it the New Age worldview. Some people call themselves New Age as a religious sect. Just like people, some people say they're Buddhist, or some people say they're Muslim, or Jewish, or Christian. Some people say they're New Age. I'm using it much more broadly than that. Much more broadly than just a little religious sect. I'm speaking about a worldview that sees the world as being comprehensively divine. In this worldview, everything's a God. So you could mine anything to try to get underneath of it to discover some truth for oneself. And in the New Age worldview, what you can do is, as an individual, you begin to make assumptions about life by what you experience. So do you see how different they are? One needs facts, the other needs feelings. All to get at the question, what is my life all about? So even though they seem like they're opposite, I really think that they're, they're, they're more similar than they are different. And both of them, whether you're empirical or new age, when you get up in the morning, there's no one to obey. There's no one to submit to. In both worldviews, you get to be your own master. So how's that going for you? How's the empirical worldview working out in your life? How's the New Age worldview working out in your life? See, if you begin to say, well, my purpose for my life, maybe you don't say this, but the way you live, the purpose of your life is your image. Good luck on fighting back your wrinkles. Maybe you say the purpose of your life is to make money, then good luck on it having any lasting satisfaction. Maybe if you say the purpose of my life is relationships, whether they're family or they're professional, I hate to break it to you tonight, brother or sister, but people are going to let you down. See, Jesus is the only logos that really works. And he only really works when he's functioning as the Lord of our lives, when he's the one who gets us call the shots. 
See, Christianity is really not a set of abstract principles. It's a person. It's not, it's, it's not a philosophy. And because it's about a person, persons are meant to be loved and to be served. So who is this person? Who is this word? Who is this meaning of life? It's Jesus Christ. And that's what John's trying to show us here in the first two verses. And then he goes on. Um, that's me. Busted. Um, so in the first point, he's trying to say Jesus is all God. Jesus is the meaning of life. But then he wants to prove to us that Jesus really is God because of what he does. And what does he do? He gets to create. He's the creator. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. See, that's what he was doing before he came to the earth. That, that when you pull back the curtain, that's what you see, is that Jesus is the creator. In verse 3, you have two clauses. You see the first clause? It puts it in the positive. He made everything. Second clause, it says, Not anything that was made was not made by him. Puts it in the negative. But they're both trying to sum up what we read earlier from Genesis chapter 1. That Jesus is the creator. See, Jesus came around way before he was, he was put in the manger. Jesus was around way before Bethlehem was the first place he got to call home. Now that might startle you, but this isn't the only place in the New Testament that talks about Jesus as creator. Uh, Colossians 1 says this, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were made through him and for him. Hebrews chapter 1 says, In these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed as the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So Colossians 1, Hebrews 1 are saying the same thing that John's saying here in verse 3, that Jesus is the creator. So Jesus, when he's sitting around with the disciples, he could have been sitting around a campfire and he could have told them stories about creating the first rhino. He could have told them stories about when he spoke mountains and the sea into existence. He could have told them the story about when he saw birds take flight for the very first time. See, Jesus' first blush with life was not in the barn with Mary and Joseph He'd been along, around long before Bethlehem, long before that barn, long before those animals, and long before even his parents. He's been around for all eternity with the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's what he was doing. When you pull back the curtain, that's what you see with Jesus. See, many times when we think about Jesus, we think about him being the New Testament member of the Trinity. The Father's the Old Testament member of the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit is the member of the Trinity that we get to experience in the here and now. But that's just not what we see in the Scriptures. You can't separate these three. I mean, they're way tighter than the three amigos. These three members of the Trinity, they've always been in concert with one another. They've always been participating together, especially in the work of creation. Creation was coordinated creativity. It took a team. God is one person. God is, is one God, but he's three persons. This wasn't a solo job done by just God the Father. Jesus was right there. And remember what verse 1 says. You see that? You remember the second clause right there? The second clause says the word was with God. See, just in that one statement, you've got Jesus being distinguished from God the Father. 
So even though he's distinguished, he also exists in a very close relationship with the Father. He was literally in the inner bosom of God. And there's just no way that you nor I can express with words the intimacy that the Father and the Son experience. There's so much love that's involved between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that literally it overflowed and combusted even into creation. They had to expand their ring of relational glory even to you and to me. So when you pull back the curtain, what do you see what's going on? You see that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were working together so that it overflowed into creation because the Logos, Jesus Christ, was with God. See, love is the foundational principle of the world. Love is the story before the story. That's what Jesus was up to. That's the behind the scenes look of what Jesus' life was like before Bethlehem. But you also see the motivation for why he came. You see the why in verses 4 and 5. You see it right there? It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see the metaphor? The metaphor is light and darkness. And all religions, both today and back in John's time, uh, they use this metaphor. They use this metaphor of light and darkness. And usually light means something synonymous with wisdom, means morality, it means being enlightened. But John doesn't mean any of those things when he uses this metaphor light. What he means by light is the person of Jesus. So on the other hand, if he means Jesus is the light, then then darkness is being spiritually ignorant. It's the world without God. It's being blind. It's being fallen. It's sinful and it's dominated by Satan. That's the darkness. So you see the dualism at work here. You've got light and darkness. But make no mistakes. These opposites are not of equal power. Light is stronger than darkness. Darkness has never, ever, under any circumstances, spiritual or physical, has darkness been able to dispel light. Light is always able to dispel darkness. So now, Jesus Christ, the light of the world, has punched a hole in the roof, and he's climbed into the darkness of the world, and now the darkness has got to go. Light is the overwhelming victor over darkness, and darkness never stood a chance. Do you remember what happened when Jesus was crucified? I mean, yes, you, you and I, we probably remember the nails, remember the cross, we might remember the soldiers, uh, but there's a small detail that if you're not paying attention, you'll miss. But when Jesus hung on the cross, the sun went out. It was the middle of the day. It wasn't nighttime. And the sun was blotted out. Why was that? Why was the sun blotted out? It's because there was, this was a real-life metaphor. This was what was happening physically in, 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 in Jesus and with the sun that pictured the cosmic battle. See, Jesus had died, the light of the world. And he died because he voluntarily, he absorbed all the darkness. And he was snuffed out and the sun went down. But it was his death. It was the light of the world's death 
that overcame darkness so that you and I might be delivered into the kingdom of light. Isn't that what you need to know this Christmas season? I know it looks like darkness is winning. Just go watch the news. I know it looks like darkness is winning. Just scroll through your social media feeds. Depression is right around the corner. You'll see it. You'll see that women are being taken advantage of. They're being sexually exploited. You'll see that minorities continue to face discrimination on personal and systemic levels. You'll see the plight of the poor continues to be ignored while the rich continue in their materialistic ways. That's what you see when, you, when you're on the news. That's what you see in your social media. But then turn in to a third screen, the screen of your heart. And maybe you can't seem to find any victory over darkness. So just inflict harm on yourself. Maybe you see so much darkness when it comes to your body image, so much enslavement, that surely light doesn't have a chance. Maybe it seems like the darkness of sexual immorality is so strong that any hope of sexuality being something healthy seems like a pipe dream. Perhaps it seems like you'll never be free from the damage done by an abuser. So you remain in bondage to your anger. You're unable to forgive. Maybe the thing for you is being unable to stand up for your faith. Maybe you've had this lifelong pattern of folding in the face of a need for approval instead of taking a bold stand for the Lord Jesus. Maybe darkness for you is depression. Maybe it's anxiety. You've tried medicine. You've tried therapy. You've tried prayer. You've tried memorizing scripture, but nothing works. You still feel like you live life in the dark. Friends, I'm with you. Uh, This week, I thought I'd done some good work on forgiving someone in my life, and then I had a an episode of blow up anger and it put me into a valley of discouragement Uh, this week I encountered a friend with severe mental illness and it was really really dark Um, this week I've received phone calls from two people who had loved ones who got diagnoses with cancer so it looks like darkness is winning so what does it look like for us what does it look like for, for Jesus to bust a hole in our roof and crawl in and dispel our darkness. Well, I think really the best thing to do is to look backwards. Yes, it's to look backwards and see that Jesus defeated darkness once and for all at the cross. But I think it's to go even farther back than that. I think it's to look at the people of the Old Testament. The people of the Old Testament, they use this same metaphor, light and darkness. We, we sung it with that Isaiah 60 uh, song that Justin sang. Uh, we said it in our, in, our, uh, in our call to worship with Isaiah 9. But here's what the people were looking forward to when Jesus came the first time. Isaiah 9 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Isaiah 42 says, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall come over the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So do you see it? Brother, sister, just 
Just as the people of God waited for the first coming of the Messiah, so we wait for the second coming. And Jesus will come, and there will be no more cancer, no more physical illness, no more depression, no more sin, no more discrimination, no more sorrow. There will only be light. And we will be in his light. There will be no need for the sun. That's good news for us this Christmas. Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That, that is our prayer. Uh, we're sick of the darkness and we long for the light. And so we ask you to come. In Christ's name, amen.